Jerusalem has fallen. The children of Israel have fled to Egypt. God has told them you can run, but you can't hide. And so judgment is coming. And uh, if I was to title tonight's um, lesson, it would be Because God Says So. And so uh, if you've ever been around children in any capacity of all, you have probably had to answer that way before. Well, because I said so. Uh, it doesn't matter why or what, it just because I said so. And starting in chapter 45, we see that God gives assurance um, to Baruch, but then yet He begins to declare judgment on many different nations. And you say, well, why would God declare judgment on these other nations when He has spent this whole book talking about Israel? Because even though Israel is God's special people, God is still God of all nations. And so uh, when He declares judgment against them, there are reasons. And those reasons sometimes go back many generations. Uh, some of them go back almost to the beginning of the Bible. But yet God declares judgment. And the reason is because He says so. And so tonight I want to just walk you through this, and I just want to show you some of these. And I don't know if we'll actually read every verse just because uh, there are some big, some big sections, but uh, we'll just have to wait and see how it goes. But uh, the first thing I want to show you tonight is God reassures His own. God reassures His own. And so right here in verse chapter 45, He begins by saying, the word that Jeremiah the prophet spoke to Baruch the son of Neriah when he had written these words in a book at the instruction of Jeremiah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, to you, O Baruch, you said, Woe is me now. For the Lord had as added grief to my sorrow, I fainted in my sighing, and I find no rest. I want to stop right there because this is actually probably written 18 years before the events of what's been going on. And if you remember what had happened about 18 years ago, God had asked uh, Baruch to write down Jeremiah's prophetic words and to share them with other people. And what we see here is, is a man who has been called to speak for God, but the overwhelming task of it has brought him to a point of concern. And so apparently, whether in his heart or in his prayer time, Baruch had said, Woe is me now, for the Lord has added grief to my sorrow. And if you think about this, he's watched how Jeremiah was treated, and now he is supposed to be the one that is presenting this message to these people from Jeremiah. And so that is what he was saying. For the Lord has added grief to my sorrow. So not only is he going through the same heartbrokenness over what's going on in Israel, but now he has to have the added grief of telling these people what Jeremiah has heard from God. I fainted in my sighing and I find... No rest. And so tonight I want you to think about that because we are living in a day and age where speaking 
the things of God is becoming more and more at odds with the culture that we live in. And it is so easy sometimes as a pastor or as a Christian to continue to preach or to speak the truth knowing that people don't respond well. That is applicable in church. I have preached many sermons over the last 10 years and uh, have received all kinds of, of uh, things in the mail or through Facebook or private messages or stopped on the street and sometimes it's very positive and other times it is not very positive. But in this passage here, he is trying to reassure him that he has that God is going to be with him as long as he will continue to do what is right. Because listen to what it says here in verse 4. Thus you shall say to him, thus, thus says the Lord, Behold, what I have built, I will break down. And what I have planted, I will pluck up. That is this whole land. And do you seek great things for yourself? Do not seek them. For behold, I will bring adversity on all flesh, says the Lord. But I will give your life to you as a prize in all places wherever you Go. He says, I'm God and I have made the decision to destroy the nation of Israel because of their wickedness. But he tells him here a very simple thing. Don't seek what you want first. And if you've read the New Testament, you've probably heard something very similar to that from Jesus, right? Absolutely. And that's exactly what he's telling him here. He's like, don't worry about trying to, to make safe passage out of Israel. Don't worry about trying to, to hoard or, or make necessary provisions for your family. Just do what I tell you and trust me. You see, we're reading this looking back, right? He is still not seeing Jerusalem fall yet. And so he's worried, am I going to die? Is my family going to die? Or are, are we going to make it out? Are we not going to make it out? Are these people going to kill me? What's going to happen? And God says, and it's specific here, as a prize in all places. He's saying your life does not depend on this city. Your life doesn't depend on living in this place. Wherever you go, God is telling him that I will bless you with your life. And that is why, because God is the God of Everywhere, not just Jerusalem, not just Israel, not just the temple, but he makes this promise to him tonight. And so I want to encourage you in your walk with the Lord tonight to keep being faithful. Keep trusting God when it doesn't make sense. Keep trusting God when it is easier to quit. Trust God when it is easier to compromise because he makes this assurance to his own thoughts. Questions? Amen. I mean, I can't imagine those people that were born in the late 1800s, like 1890-ish, right? And lived through the First World War and the Spanish flu and, and late in life World War II and just the Depression. I can't imagine that. But yet we look around like, oh, we're, it's just so bad. Toilet paper is low at Walmart, right? And that's ours. But you're exactly right, Bill. Absolutely. And that's what God was reassuring him here. Keep doing what I've asked you to do. Keep being faithful and trust that I will take care 
of you. But I'm glad it does. Just like air conditioning. I'm glad for air conditioning, indoor plumbing, and toilet paper, for sure. The second thing I want to show you tonight is God humbles those who we put our trust in. God humbles those that we put our trust in. You see, Egypt was the nation that every time someone threatened Israel that wasn't Egypt, that's who they ran to. We'll make an agreement with them. They will come and fight for us. You see that throughout the Old Testament. If Egypt wasn't bothering them, it was they were the person that they were going to find help from. And the first part is God makes this prophetic word that Pharaoh's armies are going to be crushed. And if you're Israel and your armies are not capable of fighting and you're trusting in someone else's armies, when God gives a prophetic word that your hope is going to be taken away from you, it should be a reminder that my hope should be in who? The Lord, not the abundance of soldiers. Look what it says here in verse 1 of chapter 46. The word of the Lord which came to Jeremiah, the prophet against the nations, against Egypt, concerning the army of Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, which was by the river Euphrates in Carchemish, and which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, defeated in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. Order the buckler and shield and draw near to battle. Harness the horses and mount up, you horsemen. Stand forth with your helmets. Polish the spears. Put on your armor. Why have I seen them dismayed and turned back? Their mighty ones are beaten down. They did speedily fled and did not look back, for fear was all around, says the Lord. Do not let the swift flee away, nor the mighty man escape. They will stumble and fall toward the north by the river Euphrates, who is coming up like a flood, whose waters move like the rivers. Egypt rises like a flood, and its waters move like the rivers. And he says, I will go up and cover the earth. And so it's just talking about this this idea that their soldiers were prepared, their soldiers were great, that they really believed that Egypt was this empire that would expand and, and, and control the world. But God says their armies have fled. And he goes on and says, I will destroy the city and its inhabitants. Come up, O horses and rage, O chariots, and let the mighty men come forth, the Ethiopians and the Libyans who handle the shield, and the Lydians who handle and bend the bow. For this is the day of the Lord God of hosts, a day of vengeance, that He may avenge Himself on His adversaries. The sword shall devour, it shall be satiated and made drunk with their blood. For the Lord God of hosts has a sacrifice in the north country by the river Euphrates. Go up to Gilead and take balm, O virgin, the daughter of Egypt. In vain you will use many medicines, and you shall not be cured. The nations have heard of your shame, and your cry has filled the land. For the mighty man has stumbled against the mighty, but both have fallen together. And so we see there that God is going to take what they have trusted in that wasn't Him away from them. 
And I want to give this warning to you as a Christian tonight, if you're here and you were saved. When you put your faith and trust in someone else or something else, God will only allow that to happen so long. And He will take what you have built as an idol from you. You say, Jake, I find my wealth or my self-worth in, in our money. Or I find myself worth in my title at work. Or as a pastor, I find my worth in what you think of me. I can tell you that eventually God will take those from you. Why? Because God loves you too much to leave you prideful and arrogant. God humbles His own. But look what we see here. Not only does God take the army and say that it's going to be gone, He's going to take the whole nation of Egypt away. Because it wasn't just Egypt armies that Israel kept worshiping. It even became their gods, didn't it? If you look back there in the chapters before, it talks about the fact that the children of Israel were going to go to Egypt and worship there and, and play the harlot to their false gods. And so look here in verses 13 to 26, and, and we probably won't read all of it just for the sake of time tonight. The word that the Lord spoke to Jeremiah the prophet, how Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, would come and strike the land of Egypt. Declare in Egypt and proclaim in Migdal. Proclaim in Noph and in Taphanes. Stay, stand fast, and prepare yourselves, for the sword devours all around you. Why are your valiant men swept away? They did not stand. And don't miss this. But why is that? Because the Lord drove them away. He made many fall. Yes, one fell upon another. And they said, Arise, let us go back to our own people and to the land of our nativity. From the oppressing sword they cried there, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, is but annoyed. He is passed by the appointed time. And so you see this understanding here that God is going to destroy not only their army, but their nation. And you can read here in verse 19 that they are going to go in captivity. The great Egyptians who had other people as slaves were going to be Slaves. In verse 20, it talks about that they were the pretty heifer, but destruction comes and it comes from the north. All the mercenaries and all the people that they were able to pay to come to fight with them and fight for them, God says, I'm taking every bit of that away. And I think that's very important there. In verse 23, it says, they shall cut her down, her forest. They shall cut down her forest, says the Lord, though it cannot be searched because they are innumerable and more numerous than grasshoppers. The daughter of Egypt shall be ashamed. She shall be delivered into the hand of the people of the north. He keeps specifically telling where this judgment is coming from. But I say that tonight because it is so important for us to realize that God wants us not to love Him with part of our hearts, or part of our mind, or part of our strength, but with what? All that we are. And I think all of us would say tonight, that's how we love God. But it is so easy 
not to live that way. I uh, was substitute teaching today in uh, 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 the high school. And, uh, and as you know, I don't sub for the money. I sub to get to know the kids. And uh, there were a couple Christian kids that were talking about this is on camera, but oh, anyway, uh, uh, they're talking about their test for a class that was coming up. And one of them proceeded to take their ink pen and begin to write answers on their inside of their thigh up underneath their uh, shorts. And uh, I sat there for a minute and thought, I don't know what to do here, what to say, you know. I say something, they'll accuse me of looking at some guy's leg or something, but uh, in the world that we live in... And, and uh, so I just sat there for a minute, and then I was talking to someone else about the fact that they had TP'd us this week. And, and I could tell by the look on her face that she had done something to us. And I said, did you TP us? And she went to answer, and I said these words. The Bible says to bear false witness is a what? A lie. And she goes, you can't play that card. I said, I don't play that card. It's just what the Bible says. And she goes, yes, it was me. I was one of them, but I won't rat anybody else out. And so I said in that moment, I said, I appreciate your honesty, um, but it's probably not the greatest Christian witness to write the cheat sheet on your leg and call yourself a Christian. And it was like I had, you had thought I had slapped someone's mother, right? Because the idea of high school, everybody cheats. Why would you call that as a lack of an integrity? But yet it is, right? It absolutely is. But tonight, how many times do I hear from people that say, well, I know that I should file this on my taxes, or I know I should do this, but the government takes too much of my money, and so I'm not going to do that. Because it's right. And that's where it gets hard. And so tonight, I really want you to think about those areas of your life that you and I lie to ourselves about. I... Uh, <laughs> I uh, fill out our taxes, and uh, I don't fill them out, but I take them. And uh, the church's taxes are easy. They send me a W-2. But throughout the year, um, any time that uh, something happens or someone sends us money, we write it down. Because at the end of the year, uh, we have to do what to that? Well, we just pocket it, right? Because no one else knows about it. No, right? It is considered income. Even though I ask people not to do it, even though I tell them not to, because it messes up my taxes. Two years ago, the personnel committee voted to give me a, a Christmas bonus, and I asked them not to, specifically. Dave Crane's on that committee. He can testify to that. I literally wouldn't leave the meeting because I told them, don't do that. And so they did, messed up my taxes, right? And so, uh, but yet it's still the right thing to do. And you say, well, Jake, that's awful specific tonight, and that's really meddling. What's well, that way for all of us? Each and every one of us have areas of our life that are a bigger struggle for us than others. And in those areas of our life are where we find the greatest potential to compromise just a little. And most of us wouldn't do great big things, right? I wouldn't murder someone in the middle of McLeansboro. But yet the Bible says to do what in your heart is the same thing as murder. To hate, right? Now, the same thing about adultery, right? I don't think that that would happen to me. I, I try to never be alone with a woman that's not my wife. And all those careful things that we try to put in place to protect uh, my integrity and those things like that. But yet the Bible says to, to lust is the same thing as 
adultery. And so those are areas that aren't visible. They're not big. You don't see them. But yet the areas to compromise are so close to home. And so tonight I really want to challenge you not to love God partially, but to love Him completely. Because look what it says in verses 27 and 28. God comforts His people. So we started out looking at how God reassures His people. And God responds here again by in the middle of this destruction by promising them, but do not fear, O my servant Jacob, and do not be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from afar and your offspring from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return, have rest, and be at ease. No one shall make him afraid. Do not fear, O Jacob, my first servant, says the Lord, for I am with you. For I will make a complete end of all the nations to which I have driven you. But I will not make a complete end of you. I will rightly correct you, for I will not leave you wholly unpunished. And so he just reminds them that even though it's bad, it's going to get ugly, that he is not going to destroy them completely. And so, but he also says there that he won't leave them unpunished. And so God corrects, but he keeps. God disciplines, he doesn't destroy. And so tonight, remember that when it feels like God has allowed things to go on in your life. I'm actually getting ready tonight in our evening devotion to start the book of Job. And so I don't know how that's going to work. That's a lot of lot of book. <laughs> but I feel like that's where the Lord wants us to go with our, our 8 o'clock devotion. And so I've just been thinking about that and praying about that and studying about that. Yet, when you read about Job, um, the Bible says that he was a godly man. He wasn't a perfect man because there's only one perfect person, right? But he was praying for his kids because he was worried about them living in sin. He was, he was offering sacrifices for them and, and he was just really living out his faith and God had blessed him, right? But then yet, all that goes on in the book of Job, it can make you feel like, where is God in this? But yet he's faithful. And so thoughts. Kind of giving us a bird's eye view tonight as I rapidly run through some of these judgments. Well, he moves on and God begins to just continue to give Jeremiah uh, words of judgment about those nations around Israel. And so the next one here is the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, the prophet against the Philistines before Pharaoh attacked Gaza. And so this is before the judgment happens. Thus says the Lord, Behold, waters rise out of the north, talking about Babylon and shall be an overflowing flood, and they shall overflow the land and all that is in it, the city and those who dwell within. Then the men shall cry, and all the inhabitants of the land shall wail. And the noise of the stamping hooves and of his strong horses, at the rushing of his chariots, at the rumbling of his wheels, the fathers will not look back for their children, lacking courage because the day that comes to plunder all the Philistines to cut off from Tyre and Sidon every helper who remains. For the Lord shall plunder the Philistines, the remnant of the country of Kaftor. Baldness has come upon Gaza, 
Ashkelon is cut off with the remnant of their valley. How long will you cut yourself? This is a reference to pagan worship. O you sword of the Lord, how long until you are quiet? Put yourself up in your scabbard. Rest and be still. How can it be quiet, seeing the Lord has given it a charge against Ashkelon and against the seashore? There He has appointed it. And you say, well, why is the Philistines, why are they being drugged into this? Because they were pagans. And they had caused trouble for Israel for generations. And God tells them that they are coming from the north. And if you're familiar with reading through 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, uh, 1 through Samuel, and and, uh, that uh, they were great warrior people, right? And think about the the, uh, warrior Goliath, right? And yet, look what it says here in verse 3. And I want you to look at this. At the noise of the stamping hooves of their strong horses, at the rushing of their chariots, at the rumbling of his wheels, the fathers will not look back for their children. How many of us have ever heard this analogy? I don't have to be the fastest person in the room if I'm being chased by a bear. I just have to be the second slowest person, right? I just have to outrun you in order to survive. But can you imagine this scene? An enemy army as great as Nebuchadnezzar's is coming and fathers leave their children and flee, not worried about the fact that they are going to be trampled, to be killed, to be murdered. I'm going to say this tonight. This might make somebody that's happy and it might not. I get this same picture when I watch the southern border and I watch how men, abled body men, are fleeing the poverty and terribleness of their countries, but yet they left their wife and children there to fend for themselves. Or maybe you have been watching the debacle in Afghanistan, and the tragedy that the man in charge of our country has allowed to go on. Have you noticed the people that are pushing to get on them planes? It's a bunch of abled body men. What they have done is exactly what these men did. They didn't care about their wives. They didn't care about their kids. All they wanted was to save themselves. Why is the generation that fought in the Second World War called the greatest generation. The sacrifice that that generation made, leaving families, leaving all to go and fight. Think about the sacrifices made on D-Day. Think about the sacrifices made in the Pacific. Think about all that they compromised or sacrificed, excuse me, to go fight for the freedom of other people, to stop two of the world's great evils. Today, what you are seeing in Afghanistan is a group of people who will not allow women to vote, to go to the store, to do anything. And from what we're seeing in the news, that they are hunting down uh, women, children, Christians, anyone... But yet their men, instead of fighting, are what? Fleeing. It is, in my opinion, 
what has happened to a generation of men around the world who have been taught that biblical manhood is wrong. And that there is no difference between male and female. And there's no roles established by God. No ways that things are supposed to be due. And so I do believe that male or female should be allowed to serve in our armed forces. But if I had my preference, I wish that they did not have to send females. It's just what I believe. And so you can hate me for that or not, but it's what I believe. But yet that's what we are seeing here. And so when you see that go on in Afghanistan or you see that go on at the southern border, look up here, that's not of God. It's not of God. But you see that in America today. Husbands abandoning their children. We have a generation of Americans being raised with dads not in the home. And Greg worked in law enforcement a long time, and I bet it would be overwhelming if you could give the statistics about what crime came and from and the amount of families that didn't have a dad in the home. and It's probably overwhelming. It's a big difference. It's a big difference. Yeah. I... Uh, was at a pastor's conference three years ago and uh, uh, four years ago, and my uh, cousin, that's a church planner in St. Louis, said something along the tune the tune of 90% of homes in St. Louis County, right there in the me- middle of it, in East St. Louis, will go to bed with dad not in the home. And that trend is in every big city. But it's not only in big cities. And so tonight I really want to challenge you that this is a sign of lacking what is right, and it is a sign of how terrible things can get. How terrible things can get. Thoughts. Kind of got off track there, but I meant to get off track there. So, all right, I will give you a chance. The next, though, we move on to Moab. And uh, Moab was located just east of the Dead Sea. And uh, there's a few towns that are mentioned here. Um, and this is important, I think, because the area that they occupy was actually areas that was given to the nation of Israel when they took the Promised Land, uh, to the tribe of Reuben and, and uh, Gad, if you look in Numbers 32, had originally occupied this land. But Moab had taken these territories from Israel. But yet God had said that this was not theirs, it was the nation of Israel's. And so I do not have time to read 47 verses to you tonight. But you read through here, and we'll just read some of it. It says here, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Woe to Nebo, for it is plundered. Kirjathim is shamed and taken. The high stronghold is shamed and dismayed. No more praise of Moab. In Hishbon they have devised evil against her. Come and let her cut her off as a nation. You also shall be cut down, O madmen. The sword shall pursue you. A voice of crying shall be from Haranium, plundering and great destruction. Moab is destroyed. Her little ones have caused a cry to be heard. For in the accent of Lahith they extend with continual weeping. For in the descent of Horonim, the enemies have heard a cry of destruction. Flee, save your life, 
and be like the juniper in the wilderness. For because you have trusted in your works and your treasures, you also shall be taken. And Kimshal shall go and forth in captivity, his priest and his princes together, and the plunder shall come against every city. No one shall escape. The valley also shall perish, and the plain shall be destroyed as the Lord has spoken. And so God is just telling them that that every area of your safety and security is going to be taken from you. But look at verse 11. I think this is important. Moab has been at ease from his youth. He has settled on his dredge and has not been emptied from vessel to vessel, nor has he gone into captivity. Therefore his taste remained in him, and his scent had not changed. You see, the Moabites had given Israel problems for many generations. If you remember, God told the children of Israel, don't marry into families outside of the Jewish faith and the Jewish people. And who do they find themselves shacked up with a lot? The Moabites. And God says, you probably think that you have got away with this. Right? You've got away with taking the nation of Israel's land. You've got away with corrupting the nation of Israel's worship and their gods. But your day is coming. And I think that is a very significant thing when we look about God's judgment is how often do people think that they will avoid it? Right? I, I can mouth God. I can do what I want. There's nothing that God can do to me. I hear it all the time. You probably watch it on the news or, or listen to different people and it's this idea that, well, God's not going to judge me. I've done what I wanted my whole life and I've avoided it. But I want you to look there in verse 40. For thus says the Lord, Behold, one shall fly like an eagle and spread his wings over Moab. Kirioth is taken and the strongholds are surprised. The mighty men's hearts in Moab on that day like the heart of a woman in birth pangs. And Moab shall be destroyed as a people because he exalted himself against the Lord. Fear and the pit and the snare shall be upon you, O inhabitant of Moab, says the Lord. And so God is just telling them that judgment's coming. And I think it's important that yet in verse 47 though, this is significant, yet I will bring back the captives of Moab in her later days says the Lord. And my Bible, the commentary down below, says in spite of all the dire predictions against Moab, God will restore its fortunes in the future. The prophecies of restoration are not limited to Israel and Judah. And so how do you think that Moab could experience a revival of restoration in the future. Absolutely. And I believe it is through Christ and through the fact that He offers salvation 
to the Gentile people. That's what I believe because we don't see a great Moabite nation in the Bible. We see that all nations that are around in the book of Revelations come against Israel. And so I, I agree. I believe it is through the lineage, but yet I believe it is also that God's promises of restoration aren't just to Israel as a nation. But there are promises for Israel as a nation, but that God is looking bigger than that in His promise to them. So thoughts. I know it's a lot of judgment tonight, but we're trying to, to knock all these out in one swoop. Genesis, I think that's 19, verse 38. I think it's Genesis nineteen thirty eight. So I was reading that today. That's actually Ammon. And the younger, she also bore a son and called his name Ben Amani. He is the father of the people of Ammon. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites. So yes, thus both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. So both of these nations... Well, absolutely. Absolutely. Because we're actually getting ready to see judgment on who? Ammon, right? The same uh, lineage that we just looked back to all the way to Lot. And so, here in verses 1-6 through six of chapter 49, "...against the Ammonites, thus says the Lord, has Israel no sons? Has he no heir? Why then does Milcom inherit Gad, and his people dwell in its city?" Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will cause to be heard an alarm of war in Rabbah of the Ammonites. It shall be a desolate mound, and her villages shall be burned with fire. Then Israel shall take possession of its inheritance. And you could read along there and see that it talks about that he's going to cut them off. And But yet verse 6, don't miss that again. What does it say? But afterwards... I will bring back the captives of the people of Ammon, says the Lord. And so I really think that we see with Egypt and Moab and Elam that he would one day restore the fortunes. And so whether it was a physical presence or whether it is a a restoration through uh, the Gentiles, we see that God, even though He is sick of these people, even though He is judging these people, He also extends what? Mercy and grace. And so it's a reminder that these are people who have caused more trouble for Israel than any other people on the planet, but yet God still shows mercy. And I'm thankful for that. Absolutely. And here in in the rest of this uh, section, it talks about Edom. And thus says, the Lord of hosts, is wisdom no more in Taman? Has counsel perished from the prudent? Has their wisdom vanished? Flee, turn back, in verse 8, dwell in the depths, O inhabitants of Dedan, for I will bring the calamity of Esau upon him, the time that I will punish him. And uh, if you remember um, uh, King uh, Ahaz during his reign, that they had uh, marched in and attacked Israel. And so they were one of those uh, groups of people that every time Israel would go through a low point, they would use it as an opportunity to say, oh, Israel's got their attention somewhere else. Israel's going through a downtime. Why don't we kick them when they're down? 
And so God says, I have remembered these things. And it says there in verse 11, leave your fatherless children. I will pervert, preserve them alive and let your widows trust me. So even though there's judgment, just even though there is punishment, the God says, I'll still provide. And it goes all the way down and into verse 22. But look what verse 18 says. As in the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighbors, says the Lord, no one shall remain there, nor shall a son of a man dwell in it. Behold, he shall come up like a lion from the floodplain of the Jordan against the dwelling place of the strong, but I will suddenly make him run away from her. And who is a chosen man that I may appoint over her? For who is like me? Who will array me? And who is the shepherd who will withstand me? And so God is being compared here to a lion and to an eagle and that He will drag the lambs or the Edomites and He's going to swoop down and they're His prey. And so God says, who is like me? And I think this is really significant here. God is just reminding them that there is no one like Him. There are no pagan gods. There are no earthly wisdoms that God alone is God. And so, like I said, just judgment specific. And we're not going to look at the next two. We're just going to, to just look at the, the two places here, Damascus and, uh, and there's Kedar and, uh, and, uh, and Hazar. And those are, um, uh, some descendants of Ishmael and some of the tribes of Persia and Elam. And we are going to stop it and look at Babylon on its own. But but do you not just hear this theme? God is specific. He is specific in judgment. God doesn't just pour out judgment for no reason. And tonight I want to leave you with that because as we live in a world that seems to be completely ran by chaos, it is not. God is a God of order, and that nothing has happened that is outside of His control or outside of His authority. And so when God chooses to pour out judgment, whether it is America, whether it is another nation, God knows exactly what He's doing and why He's doing it. But also in those times of judgment, we see that God still works and moves in the lives of people. And so I do believe that judgment is coming to America. Um, I hope that it doesn't. I hope that God works and moves in a mighty way and sends a great revival. But if He doesn't, judgment is coming. And the idea of falling under the judgment of God should terrify a people. You say, well, what about, oh, 2008? That was the judgment of God. That ain't nothing compared to what the judgment of God can look like. You say, I lost 50% of my retirement account. Listen, when God pours out real judgment, 50% is going to look like a good day. You say, well, what about, what about the coronavirus and, and, and the judgment of God? Could it be a little bit? Absolutely. But I believe when God really opens up the windows and pours out judgment, it looks a whole lot worse than something that kills 0.01% of the population. You say, Jake, what does that mean? I don't know, and I'm not a prophet, and I'm not here telling you anything about when or where or how, but you cannot continue to do the things that we do 
in the face of God and expect Him to continue to bless our nation. But God can still work through a group of people even when judgment comes. God can still be using this church to see people saved. God can still be using this church to send missionaries and care for the poor and the broken. And I know I've said this a lot and I, and I say it because it has blessed me more than almost anything that, um, when the pandemic first started, uh, I know of many churches that had church members die. Families asked their churches to do a funeral meal for them. And the churches said, oh, absolutely not. We're not doing it. We will not serve your family in a time of loss because we might catch something. Now, I'm not saying that if you've got double pneumonia or you've got COPD that you ought to be serving a funeral meal. But I prayed about it a long time because we had a death at the very beginning. It was Daryl Moss. And uh, his mother came all the way from right up by Washington, Washington D.C., 40 minutes this way. And, uh, you know, she started having dementia. She was really starting to go downhill at that point. You know, you could tell a little bit. And it blessed her to be able, even if, though she couldn't really hug, or I hugged her, I didn't care, but uh, to be around people that she loved. And I really believe, I really believe that churches did themselves a great disservice by taking an opportunity that God gave them to love people and saying, absolutely not. We're just not going to do it. Now, I don't know if all the committee was happy that we had those meals, but we just kept having them. And as your pastor, I want you to know that that has blessed me probably more than anything that has ever happened here. You say, Jake, we've put roofs on people's houses. We've built wheelchair ramps. We've sent missionaries. We've seen hundreds of people saved. But in that moment, we could have let fear control us. We didn't. And so if you're on that committee and you're in here tonight, know that you are loved and appreciated. And, um, and so tonight I just want you to think about that. That God can work even when it doesn't seem possible.